so to round out our episode Hayley and I did a bit of a deep dive into periodicals. So, Hayley, you did the uh, English Women's Domestic magazine, and I did the Ladies' Treasury. And for future reference, we always refer to the English Women's Domestic magazine as the EDM. And I don't mean electronic dance music when I say that. (laughs) Just always know that I am talking about the English Women's Domestic magazine. Yeah. So, uh, we, we had a look at those expecting there to be quite different portrayals of motherhood because um edm is they're not that it's um it was edited by the beaton so samuel and isabella beaton and it's not afraid sometimes of being a little bit more more out there with its topics they had some controversial things in there whereas um in the ladies treasury which emma was looking at uh, eliza warren francis was editing that and it's very much more conservative and they're very careful about not saying anything to in fact i think the way that um that she puts it in the opening of the ladies treasury is that they won't include anything that might innovate or bewilder the the female mind so um we were expecting quite quite different results from that i think actually we got more surprisingly similar results than I expected. We did. We did. So our aim was to either come up with some top tips and curious clips. And so Hayley's going to start us off with her top five. Okay. So the first one that I picked was actually the very first article that's published in the first um, first ever um, published English Women's Domestic Magazine, uh, which was an essay on female education. So this was detailing what kind of knowledge you have to acquire before you can perform the duties of wife and mother. So the things that you need, first of all, cookery, you should have competent knowledge. So um, it suggests that it's more a matter of common sense than most people imagine. And a slight tincture of chemical knowledge is very useful to those who practice it, so as to enable them to simplify by generalization. I think what she's describing is the difference between cooking and baking. Because cooking, bit of spice here, bit of spice there. You do that in baking, ruined immediately. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I, I really like this, this idea of it being like a chemical knowledge. And that's not unique to here. That's something that comes up a lot in, um, in women's periodicals. And just like, I, I believe in sort of cooking... Um, texts in in the 19th century generally and i just like that it's got that science element to it so um like we were saying actually in in last month's podcast as well with things that women were um, were expected to know or just um sort of i don't know not not necessarily um education but just as the the characteristics of what made you a good wife material or um, a good mother material actually a lot of the time was really quite complex and um, and not not frivolous at all as it's sometimes framed so a bit of chemical knowledge for your cookery and then for washing and cleaning you need to um, be able to care and prepare furniture and dress um, you have to be able to economize heat and also you need the um the accomplishment of effectual ventilation as well so for all of those things you need to be in your education sufficiently informed and made acquainted with the most approved modes 
Which is very vague. It's very vague. It doesn't specify yeah. what those approved modes are, but friends. Things that you, <laughs> you need to know. And um, I think you can probably all um, all sympathise with the econom- economisation of heat. <laughs> yes. Yes, we can. <laughs> and the final thing, you should be instructed in the mode by which, in the simplest and most ordinary cases, health may be preserved and restored and more particularly how the most prevalent ailments of children may be dissipated or averted. And again, I just particularly like this one because it's that science element again, that knowledge that you need to know. You need to have a little bit of chemical knowledge for your cooking. Yes. You need to have medical knowledge for administering medicine to your children or your partner. Um, so, yeah, very simplified, but quite actually intense top tips for what's required to be wife and mother would be great if they'd done the 19th century equivalent of linking us to something yes. with that knowledge although as we will see um actually in the next couple of um couple of favorites that i picked out they do go on to kind of fire away Hayley. Out these tell us all about it so they have a section and this is in the um in the same volume called the sick room and nursery and uh, one of the the pieces of advice that I picked out here was for suckling children, as it puts it. And it suggests that if a mother be a strong and healthy person, it's always best that she should suckle her own child. But if she's sickly, she only does herself harm without doing the infant any good. When this is the case, the best method is to use a calf's teat tied around the neck of a bottle This bottle may contain a mixture composed of the yolk of a raw egg broken up with one pint of milk and a pint of hot water, which is enough for 24 hours until the child has reached eight months old. I'm not sure it is. (laughs) And also... I'm not sure that was the best advice. I I have additional questions that you can't answer, but additional questions in terms of when it was just, when it was talking about the medical aspect... How often do you change an actual calf's teat? That's a good question. It is provide though. No, because <laughs> I'm imagining the full eight months aren't going to do it. Particularly if you're shoving an egg, a raw egg, through it mm. once a day. Delicious. I'm sure maybe you'll really appreciate <laughs> Little PSA, no raw eggs. No <laughs> raw eggs, raw eggs for baby. <laughs> No, it's not good for them. Although I suppose in this case, uh, mixing it with hot water would... Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, and milk. Mm. And I guess, I mean, because I suppose... <sighs> trying to get as many vitamins into the child as possible. Yeah, some form of nutrition. Yeah, but, um, you, you can see the train of yeah. thought that people are using. So I then um, picked out one that was quite different, The Mother's Love... And this one actually is um, attributed to the author, Mrs. Ellis. So this is um, really just an article that was about how wonderful mothers are. So it says um, that the mother's love, winding its silken cords alike around every natural object, whether worthy or unworthy, it creates a bond which unkindness cannot break. So it goes on a bit here. It's it's quite a wordy one, but it's essentially saying that it doesn't matter what your what your child does or if they go down the wrong route. The mother is is that constant there for them. 
Which sounds very nice, but it does take a, a somewhat less nice turn. Um, she says at one point that scarcely anyone is so depraved as to teach her child what she conscientiously believes to be wrong. Uh, other governors in after years may take upon themselves the tuition of her child and lead him through the paths of academic law, but the early bias, the bent of the moral character, the first principles of spiritual life will be hers. And hers the lasting glory or the lasting shame. So <laughs> I don't think those two things necessarily go together for me, but yeah, very much a suggestion that if you get this wrong, um, it's your fault <laughs> if your child ends up. There was actually one like that that I'm not going to talk about right now in um, The Lady's Treasure. It's called Mother and Child. And it was just like, the child is God's charge to you. And it was basically like, don't ruin it. And I was like, oh, 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 the pressure. Yeah. So um, not not entirely agreeing with this one again. Actually, one of the things that comes up a lot, um, which, again, I haven't picked uh, too many of these because they are a bit too similar, but the idea of the mother being a teacher came up a lot. So, yeah. Um, same here. Yeah, yeah. So in poetry, in the articles, in stories, um, the mother as the teacher is, is very, very much a thing. Um, and the last part of this that I, I did pick out, because at the end, um, she, she sort of suggests all of the things that make a, make a good mother. So she's saying that there is, there's no scene throughout the whole range of our observation, more strikingly illustrative of intellectual, moral, and even physical beauty than that presented by a domestic circle where a mother holds her proper place as the source of tenderness, the centre of affection, the bond of social union, the founder of each salutary plan, the umpire in all contention, and the general fountain of cheerfulness, hope, and consolation. Which is a lot to be expected to be. <laughs> I mean, put that on your CV, you'll get any job going. Yeah, and yeah, there are lots of things in there that I think we we could recognise as features that we uh, we associate with mothers. Mm. Sort of the, the umpire of contention, <laughs> sorting out all of those issues between between children. But yes, this this particular article was started off being very aren't mothers wonderful, and then sort of um, descended into. Mothers have to be one of these things, otherwise they are to blame for their children yeah. being bad. Yeah, so um, if you've ever had to be the umpire in all contention, I think that, that really just boils down to, have you ever had a child say, she started it, and you go, well, I'm ending it. <laughs> yes, that's exactly it. Then congratulations, you're the umpire in all contention. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, the next one that I picked out was actually called The Stepmother. Mm. Um, and I picked this one because there was an interesting portrayal of stepmothers because stepmothers traditionally, in kind of fairy tale tradition anyway, stepmothers get a really bad name. It's always the wicked stepmother. And actually, in your example with Mrs. Gibson, mm. it's that idea of the stepmother not really having the connection with the child and so they're horrible to them and misunderstand them. Maybe they favour their own child more, um, which is obviously incredibly unfair to stepmothers. And this sort of addresses that and turns it on its head. So 
it, there's um, a family who are sadly losing their mother at the very beginning of this story. And um, the oldest daughter takes on the role of the mother and the mother passes away. Um, there's no discussion of that beforehand. She just decides, I am now going to be yeah. mother too. And I think there's about four children, including a baby who's only about one. So she fully takes that on herself. She takes the, the small baby into her room, to her bed, and just cares for them. And they start to call her mother. And it, it's very, very sweet. But then the father remarries without really consulting them. They've never met this woman before. Um, Very big Mrs. Gibson vibes here. Yes. <laughs> he literally, sorry to interrupt, he literally pitches up at the Hamleys and he's like, Molly, I'm getting remarried without having consulted her opinion mm. or her feelings on it. And she's heartbroken. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's, 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 same it's thing happens. Similar. I mean, they have a tiny bit of warning because the older daughter hears a rumour oh, no. about this woman. Oh, and we also hear then, the rumour. Oh, <laughs> and then she gets a letter from the father explaining that he's getting married, he's going to be bringing this woman home. Um, and the reaction of the children is just, they're horrified. Yeah. Uh, and it actually says that for the older daughter, she, um, she already has this kind of preconceived fear of stepmothers. Yeah. And then the younger children also have this terrible reaction. Um, one of them's called Emma, actually. And um, she she imagines this scenario where this woman will like cut her curls and be Aww. be mean to her. And she says she doesn't want her. She asks her older sister to uh, not not ask her to. I think she she says don't ask her to stay for tea, and then maybe she'll she won't she'll stay. leave, <laughs> which is sweet and sad at the same time so they're all expecting the stepmother to be horrible but um actually when she turns up although they were initially a bit um a bit dogfish and yeah yeah soon they they all start to love her and the the younger children start to call her mother uh, the older daughter passes the keys of the house on to her and there's this moment where actually the children sort of directly reject their older sister in favour of the stepmother. Um, and the, the youngest one who used to go out on a, I think it's a horse ride with his older sister, he says, no, no, I don't want you. I want I want our mother. And uh, that, well, absolutely breaks her heart, obviously. And she, yeah. she runs outside and she's, she sits by her, her mother's grave. Um, oh, which is yeah, it's it's very dramatic and sad. But then... The stepmother comes out and she starts talking to her and they have this real kind of heart to heart where yeah. she explains um, her past and how she ended up being her stepmother, mm -hmm. that she lost her mother when she was yeah. um, uh, not actually too too long before and that this, this girl's father helped her through that and um, that she loves him. and And they have this kind of, intense reconciliation and it's kind of it feels as though the moral of that is sort of saying you know the the stepmother uh, trope that you expect all of these children expect the stepmother to be horrible uh, actually when you turn the stepmother into a, a real person with a history of her own and a mother of her yeah. own it's not really like that so that's why I liked the stepmother that's why I picked that one um, yeah, she might not be yeah. a Mrs. Gibson. She might be a normal person. No, although I do have to say, in uh, a little bit later in in EDM, there's a children's section which mm. then just tells the story, the typical trope story of a stepmother who 
is absolutely horrible and locks the child up in a room. So oh. without, without completely challenging the stereotype in EDM, but, but that one at least does. Um, so the, the final one was a bit of a, a quick fun one, I think, um, which was actually so placed in the, this is in the, the, the very beginning of the Englishman's Domestic Magazine again. And it was actually just a reprint of something that was published in Notes and Queries, which is a different periodical, which actually, again, what really wasn't uncommon. There was um, a lot of stealing from other <laughs> places. Um, but they put this piece in from Notes and Queries, which is about a woman who had no less than 36 children. No. <laughs> no. So, yes, I just had to throw that one in there because it was such a, like such a shock uh, reference to, to mother. There's some kind of suggestion there that the claim has been questioned, um, but they are sort of saying that they, they believe that it's true because it's corroborated by, by another source. Not all of the children lived i think it says there were about 25 of them alive at once or maybe 27 i think it's the 27 mm. when you first told me because when this is why you got the muted reaction because when i first found out i was like but how how did this happen <laughs> i was trying to figure out how many you know twins or triplets this this woman might have had in order to to make up 36 children yeah so particularly <sighs> that's that's an olympic <laughs> amount of children to have times mm. so yes on to me my favorite um <laughs> my favorite tips and curious clips um so one of my favorite tips um from the ladies treasury there was um a whole section um it was a repeating section through uh, many issues of the magazine called domestic gatherings um and this one was uh published on the 1st of march in 1861 and it says Mother should not be too sharp upon the young men who visit at their house and show some little politeness to their daughters. They should not immediately seek the answer of what are men's intentions. Many an eligible young man has been scared away by that terrible question, and many more are effectively kept away by fear of it. Many a young man whose heart was gradually warming and who would have soon made the desired proposal has taken flight and departed because he was questioned at a moment when he was not exactly prepared to declare positively his intentions. If the bird catcher were to run after every bird that approaches his net, he would certainly go home with none. Depend upon it, there is many a solitary old maid who might have long since been a happy wife, but for the premature application of that alarming question, what are your intentions towards my daughter? <laughs> no, lots of blame going on in both of these. Lots of blame going on in periodicals. both of these beautiful mothers. Oh, yes. I like the image of them as bird catchers. <laughs> yes. Daring young men who, who come near to the house. <laughs> Sorry, I just had like this immediate image of like a Mrs. Bennett with like a superimposed bird net just stalking around. Yeah, that would be quite appropriate, actually. <laughs> I think I love it. I think I love it. Yes. Um, so another curious clip that I came across um, is in an article called The Education of Girls, which was written by the editor. And this is from uh, the 1st of July, 1868. And it says, 
A woman of generally cultivated intellect, the blessing in every household. A woman possessing only one accomplishment, or one who deems attention to home comforts and the welfare of others as a matter of indifference, or another who insists upon woman's rights to the exclusion of domestic rights of home needs is a nuisance. Well, that's a take. <laughs> it is. It it truly is. Um, mm. Mm. What's the idea of cultivated intellect? Yeah, cultivated intellect, but in a very specific direction. Otherwise, you're a nuisance. <laughs> yes, you have to fit in our very specific idea of what a cultivated intellect mm. is. Otherwise, a nuisance. It's such a dismissive word, nuisance, yeah. as well. Yeah. There was another article that was called Aunt Deborah's Receipt Book and that was published on the 1st of November 1857 and it begins with my dear niece to your last letter you added a postscript which knowing what a particular I am for the observance of our social customs I thought thoroughly scarcely necessary it ran thus I hope my dear aunt will not forget Christmas and New Year's Day and nigh at hand after soundly criticising her niece, she proves how ready she is for the festive season, and this seemingly fictitious story suddenly shifts into a set of seasonal recipes that include roast turkey, sirloin of beef or fine ribs, a roast goose, plum pudding, and mince pies. And so this this fictional Aunt Deborah, um, under you know, the, the disguise of a recipe book. Is giving clearly maternal directions, these directions from the older woman to the younger woman mm. on what to serve the family um, when you do not expect a good round party, as Aunt Deborah borrows the words from Sir Walter Scott. Mm. An interesting one. Um, th those actually come up a lot in periodicals as well, don't they? That framing of um, you start off by thinking it's fiction and then suddenly it's something else, like a recipe book or a dream interpretation guide it also happens with yeah so this happens also a little bit um earlier in the century um with novels of manners and conduct literature um and it, it's the, the two-way street is really weird at times because you have things that started out really prescriptive of you know here is a list of things you should do that being conduct literature and the novel of manners being something fictitious again it's sort of almost a didactic story that's sort of wrapped up in something that's fun to read and it was blurred really strangely so you'd still have that list of things but around it would be like um, a few sentences or a few like fictional letters of a mother describing um describing conduct to her daughters mm. but and i don't mean to be rude to mrs rundle not in a fun way in a very prescriptive way it's they were, trying, they were trying they were trying it was it's it's as with i found i don't know about you many genres the first ones are cutting edge and they're cool because they're cutting edge but you, you can really see that it's very experimental is what we're saying hmm. yeah and sometimes it's a bit of a hit and miss <laughs> um situation so we have what's probably the smallest quote but also probably as, as they used to say, it's a rich text. There's a lot to unpack here. <laughs> so at the end of an article called The Grandmother, published on the 1st of June in 1859, it says, Let not the indigent envy 
the superfluities of luxurious wealth that isolate the individual and make cold the heart. The habits of the poor produce sociability and sympathy. Where the impulses are noble, he draws yet closer the ties of family. The child of the poor, if it has no servants, has many mothers. Now, yes and no. Mm-hmm. Like, from a, from a modern perspective, it's kind of, to an extent, nice to see that it's not, as, as we've seen with many of the other things in this um, little section, that it's not all on the mother. It's not, you are the mother and therefore in charge of everything. That huge CV list that you gave off at one point, it, it's nice to kind of see that sense of, um, you know, it takes a village to raise a child. Um, but to say that, well, for a start, the, the free labour there, you know, if you can't have servants, um, there's always um, women in your family who will just naturally take on um, quite extensive childcare um, is one thing. Yeah, so it's not really um, superfluous wealth is a, is a bad thing. Look how how wonderful mothering is in these poorer families. It's actually just putting a lot more pressure on people to do free labour um, yeah. when they also have to actually labour <laughs> to, to live money. To live. Yeah. Um, you, you also made a, because I, I quoted this to you earlier, and you were also talking about um, Charles Dickens. Yeah, it reminded me of, um, of A Christmas Carol. <laughs> I know, because you, you've been teaching it recently. I have. <laughs> So, um, yeah, it just really reminded me of the way that um, the Dickens presents kind of, not even just the Cratchits, but when the, the ghost of Christmas present shows Scrooge the um, the miner's house and the lighthouse and the kind of um, look at all these people having, you know, nice Christmases and lovely family time despite being poor. Um, and, it's, yeah, it reminded me of that kind of, yeah. that kind of idea. Scrooge is the the super wealthy one is the lonely one and that those who are poor kind of stuck together more yes and the idea of money um actually comes up in in my very very last Mm. point here we have a little article titled on the expenditure of limited incomes published in april 1861 uh, so the article starts out saying that it's the duty of wives and mothers to make sure that the household is running to account and that tracks with everything else that we've seen. Um, it has a variety of budgets being at £300, scaling down to £100, and this is per year. So a quick comparison of these breakdowns looks like this. On £300 a year, you should spend £110 on household living and living expenses, £70 on education of children and their clothes, £50 on rent and taxes, £30 on clothes for the father and mother, £20 on servants, and have £20 in reserve. By comparison, living on a budget of £120, you should spend £50 on living and household, £12 on education of children, £25 on rent and taxes, £15 on clothes for the father and mother, and £8 on a servant. On this budget, there is no reserve or money for washing, which must be done by the maids and mothers. The writer continues on comfort. To a man poor, it calls up visions of cleanliness and cheerfulness, a well-swept hearth and wholesomely cooked meal. 
Not the comforts of the piano, the tawdry dress, the flaunting bonnet and veil. Uh. <laughs> yes. Um, so a really quick reality check on what they mean by um, limited income. So using Dale Porter's The Thames Embankment, Environment, Technology and Society in Victorian London. In the mid-1860s, workers in London received the following wages for a 10-hour day, six days a week. Common labourers, three shillings, nine pence. Excavators wearing their own long water boots, four shillings, sixpence. Bricklayers, carpenters, masons, smiths, six shillings, sixpence. And engineers, the highest on this little list, seven shillings and sixpence, which equated to about £110 a year. So it's still £10 off the lowest rung of the limited expenditure that the ladies' treasury could possibly imagine catering to. Um, yeah, it's very it, middle class, it, is what we're saying. It's, it is. And it, it makes sense because these periodicals were aimed at middle class mm-hmm. um, readers. So, yeah, they wouldn't be expecting anybody who was, um, who was earning less than that. So it does make that comment about um, not, not having superfluous bonnets, but making sure that you have a well-spoken heart would feel a little bit ironic. So thinking of the pricing of these, I believe that the Englishman's domestic magazine was sixpence and the ladies' treasury was sevenpence. Mm-hmm. So already the ladies' treasury is a teeny tiny bit more high market. It is, but actually they, um, because of the, the market at the time for women's periodicals, mm-hmm. they were actually kind of the, the only rivals of each other. They were the two from their their circulation. Um, I think it was about 60,000 on EDM and the Ladies' Treasury was its only its only rival mm-hmm. at the time. So, yeah, even though there's a, a tiny price difference, um, it wouldn't really be... They were marketing to very much the same, <laughs> the same audience. They were the top kind of middle-class women's periodicals. And it seems like they, of course because of the price, are clearly aimed towards sort of the middle-class market. Mm. I mean, in that cut-down of, of expenditures, we didn't see a, a section that said, you know, budget this much to pay for periodicals. It very much just assumes that you can just buy a periodical <laughs> oh, if you want that goes into household, I guess. I guess so. I mean, some of that was quite confusing, so I was just like, what's the difference between household and rent? Mm. I, I, had, I had questions. I, I wanted more with yeah. this breakdown. I guess household items to buy household sort of food and yeah i also mm-hmm. wondered where the yeah, extra money came for in the 120 because you notice quite early on that children's clothes just fall off that list yeah and i was like that priority i was just like they're going through yeah. lots of clothes i was like mm-hmm. how's this happening particularly if you're not spending the extra money on like washing then that kind of goes back to mending and the EDM, as we saw in your earlier one, kind of says that you have to know mending, but, it, but it, it doesn't give a lot of instructions on mending. It gives you instructions on pretty embroidery. It does. But it does not so actually, much on mending. T- t- tell me, am I it, wrong? It does, in EDM at least, it does give instructions on making things from scratch. Of course, you have to be able to afford the materials. Yes. Um, but say things like, um, when I was looking, one of the um, one of the suggestions mm-hmm. was that I, I believe it phrased it from, from Mothers and Marthas, these little baby boots that you could make. Um, if you're a Martha, apparently we can send you we can send you a copy of the boot <laughs> if you would like yeah. one. So 
you could sort of make things from scratch, but yeah, obviously, again, and the suggested materials for these things are expensive as well. It's not just like, you know, make this from anything. It's very specific as to the materials that you need to go out and buy. Yeah. So, so yeah, exactly. When we've been looking at Victorian motherhood from novels, from periodicals, which have a mixture of both fiction and non-fiction, a lot of it because it is based around the ideal, is also based around something which is not exactly attainable. It's something to aim at, but it's not attainable. Yeah, that may be particularly realistic. And also, concerning mothers, as we found, often quite tragic. Yeah. But always based around that kind of mother as as teacher, the mother as the guide, um, whether that is the kind of narrative voice of mother or mm-hmm. or um, some maternal or mothering figures of sisters and aunts, relatives. Um, yeah, so variety of mothering. Yeah, variety <laughs> of mothering. Always available. Mm-hmm. Then and now, once again, maybe the conclusion of all of our podcasts. Then and now. <laughs> yeah, so Victorian Mother's Day. Not not particularly hugely different, but um, in terms of presentations of mothers, somewhat different. Yes, yes. Thankfully. Indeed. So I hope that wherever you are, mother or not, you're potentially enjoying some cake, maybe buy yourself some daffodils, just for fun. Yeah, and not feeling like everything is your fault, because it's not. <laughs> it's not. And as we go back up to, I want, because I do want to make sure that I get this 100% correct, um, I just think it's a very um, empowering idea to just, you know, when when you're having a bad day or a bad moment, um, just think to yourself, I am the umpire in all contention. I've got this. Absolutely. So thank you so much for joining us uh, for our Mother's Day podcast, our March Mother's Day podcast. So coming up next month, it's Charlotte Bronte's birthday. Woo! Happy birthday, Charlotte. Um, And in that podcast, we will be having a very special guest to join us don't miss it. I'm so excited for that. Me too. <laughs> Me too. We've got, got some little plans in the works. It's going to be really exciting. So, yeah, that's next up on our list of things. So thank you ever so much for listening. An additional thanks this episode goes to Miriam Vandenberg for being our consultant. And as always, extra special, massive thanks to Dave Parks, who is our video editor and our sound technician. Thank you, Dave. So from March episode of All the Year Round. Goodbye for now.